It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Hello everyone, I'm Ed Gotham and welcome to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Noah Hammond, the founder and CEO of Advisor Shares, a firm which creates and manages a huge variety of interesting actively managed ETFs from thematic focused ones to multi-asset and income. Noah has more than 15 years experience in industry and that includes a focus on innovative financial technology. In this interview, we explore what the Fed is actually going to do with interest rates as opposed to what they've been telling the market, thematic ETFs such as Vice and Beds, and a fascinating AI-powered momentum ETF that focuses on both fundamental sentiment and technical indicators to inform its positions in the market. Enjoy. Hi, Noah. Great to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you? Very good, very good. It's obviously a very uh, interesting time in the markets at the moment. Um, Globally, there's a lot of stuff happening, obviously, with everything in Ukraine, which is awful. Lots of terrible things still coming out of there. Um, But obviously, the markets are also moving a lot um, because of what's happening in the States. Um, We've had a a rally off the lows over the last sort of three weeks or so. Um, Is is this a bear market rally or or is it turning into something else now? How, how do you sort of look at that? It could be. Um, for us, at least in the U.S., a lot of eyes are really on what the Fed is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, the Fed has announced you know, uh, that they want to be at least aggressive with raising interest rates. Um, and I'm not sure that that's going to entirely have a negative impact on the market itself. And in fact, it feels like the market has priced in a few already, uh, just based on what the yield curve looks like right now. Um, really the big concern is uh, the Fed balance sheet. Um, They've talked about reducing that, stopping their bond buying, their asset purchasing, but they have not. They've continued to buy, and we think that that's helped buoy the market, you know, in spite of coming off of a global pandemic and in spite of, you know, currently what's going on in in Eastern Europe. And so um, I'll really keep an eye on the Fed balance sheet. If they are serious and they're going to pull back on providing the liquidity to the markets, then yes, we are in the camp of we could easily be uh, in some meaningful you know time pa- frame for a bear market, um, with obviously lots of up and down volatility along the way, of course. And can you just take us through? So, what what are the implications um, on if they, if if they don't address the balance sheet issue? What are the implications of that? If they don't, meaning they continue to buy and continue the pace they, yes. I think it's you know good times for the market, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that strange environment that we've had where if you go back as far as two thousand and eight, where really they begin you know increasing the Fed balance sheet in, in earnest, we've gone through so much stuff you know from the financial crisis in 08 to you know a global pandemic, and at least again in the U.S. markets that are at our at all time highs, it just doesn't make any sense and. So you have that environment of when they're creating the liquidity, even if the economic numbers don't look great, 
the market can still be up, we think the reverse can happen. Um, so, you know, if they stop buying, the economy still can improve and things can be better, you know, sort of economically speaking, it just might not be great for the market. But if both are kicking into gear uh, with the market opening back up um, and the Fed providing liquidity, um, then we think it's a great time to be in the market. Okay. And so if, looking ahead, what is your macro outlook for the rest, rest of the year? What do, you, what do you see the Fed actually doing despite what they sort of say? I think they'll raise maybe half as much uh, as they said that they would. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me to see at least maybe one or two more hikes, but not four or five or six. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what they're going to really do about the balance sheet. I think that's going to be the most challenging thing and where you probably start to run in uh, to the implications between you know politics and what the Fed does and, and its implications on the market. And uh, as we are coming to midterms um, late this year in the U.S., uh, if the Fed were truly to stop, you know, buying and, and or reduce their balance sheet and likely to see that negative impact on the market, you know, then produces a negative sentiment relative to those that are in office today. And there comes that, you know, crazy little dynamic um, between the you know politicians pressuring the Fed to help the market look better so that they might win their uh, seats back. Um, so it'll, it'll be an interesting dynamic. So we're going to watch that part closely, watch the convergence of this midterm elections, but until they actually do something, um, we still think it's, you know, probably better to be in the market for now. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of people have also been talking about us, uh, well, the U S but global, I suppose as well, people dipping into recession as signs of it happening. I think they, they're commenting on the yield curves, um, crossing to the two and the 10 year, which sort of, um, predicted historically that uh, it's a start leading indicator of a recession. If that sort of happens and that starts to happen and accelerate, is the Fed going to be forced to take action to sort of avoid that like they normally do, which is, you know, again, quantitative easing, et cetera? Well, I think you're right. They'll feel like they're forced to take action. I'm not sure that they should. Um, You know, recessions are sort of these natural, healthy, cyclical things that happen, right? It's um, the market just can't always go up and up and up. And there's got to be periods of time between the market, you know, and or the economy. Um, and to me, at least, it feels like that's really where our biggest challenge is as we are opening up, at least within the U.S. You know, there's still not a lot of jobs that are being filled, even though it does seem like if you look at our unemployment numbers, they're as low as they've been before pre-pandemic levels. Um, nonetheless, if you have, you know, stayed at a hotel or you've gone to a restaurant, you've seen how short-staffed, you know, a lot of these sort of core industries are. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, it's, um, you know, there could be a big... What, why is that? Um, it's a good question. I don't know. Um, we see that here as well. And it's, I just... I, well, for us, I think it started with the stimulus checks, right? You were in a sense paid um, not to go to work. And in some instances, you know, maybe paid well relative to whatever it was that you did for a living, right? But I don't know what's not brought them back to the jobs, um, so I'm not sure. And you do have other companies that, you know, I was thinking of the Amazons of the world that are continuing to hire lots of people. Um, but even themselves, you know, having a union vote, uh, is going to put more yeah. pressure relative to employment. So it doesn't mean that's the wrong or the right thing. It's just going to be more pressure on their hiring. So I don't know. You would think once the, um, you know, the payments to help people during the global pandemics kind of, um, were used up. Um, that would really drive people to go back to work, but you, but you know, just haven't seen it as much. Yeah, very peculiar. It's almost changed the mindset of a, a large proportion of the population because we see it here as well. It's so substantial the change. Yeah. Right. 
And it doesn't feel like it's from a lack of, you know, wages and things like that, right? All, all companies, yeah. it feels like, are paying yes. more. Um, so, yeah, it is. It's strange. Um, well, the Fed, yeah, okay. So we're, we're, the likely action is that they won't be able to raise rates, hike rates as much as possible because essentially it looks like we're dipping into recession. They've got these added uh, midterm expectations that are, are weighing upon them, uh, which look, you know, they won't be able to do the seven, eight, nine uh, rate hikes that they sort of projected, which, which in the end is, is, is if you're saying we've priced in those higher rate hikes, is, is positive for the market. And that's why you're saying, you know, we're seeing some, you know, some positive sort of movements and momentum on a lot of the stocks at the moment. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. And so in this environment, because obviously it, that is a, uh, a theory and, you know, whether or not what plays out, nobody knows, but how do you manage risk in a market with heightened volatility such as this? So how would you go about doing that? Well, you know, the best way is to consider being hedged in some way. And, and hedge can mean, you know, pulling some risk off and going to cash. You know, hedge can mean, uh, you know, taking something that shorts a particular category in the market. Um, you know, we have a, a couple of strategies and it really depends on, you know, the risk tolerance that you have. Uh, but one is our alpha DNA uh, strategy, which uses, uh, has a unique approach of, of measuring what they call digital momentum or your digital footprint of a company. Um, so they have their own uh, artificial intelligence process that is scanning and not just social media, right? And looking for positive chatter. They're looking at, you know, app downloads. They're looking at, you know, uh, comments and sales on Amazon. They're looking at uh, real engagement about products, you know, in a company's social channels, not just people, you know, talking about the stock or something like that. And they'll use that process, their own proprietary process, to identify these companies, try to find the ones that they believe between this, um, you know, digital chatter, for lack of a better phrase, and lining that up to earnings expectations and looking for those companies that should. Uh, exceed those expectations. So they'll invest in a concentrated basket of just those companies on the long side, which is nice. So you get, you know, the opportunity to participate in equity upside, but they just have a, a very simple uh, option hedge along that. So it costs a little bit of money in terms of performance and the strategy, but it keeps the portfolio hedged through this market. And so, you know, no different than how you might treat your house where, you know, you don't want to have a, a fire in the house or something bad happened to it with that's weather related or otherwise. And um, you pay for a little bit of insurance on it to try to keep the whole place protected uh, as much as possible. And that's, in a sense, what this strategy tries to do. And there's a lot of funds that people know of that are sort of, um, they rebalance daily. And this obviously uh, doesn't do that. And there's some benefits. No, right. Right. This is more like a traditional, you know, active manager, but with that hedging component. Um, so it's, yeah, it's the Alpha DNA ETF. The ticker symbol in the US is SCNT for sentiment, right? So it's measuring the sentiment, uh, you know, of consumers online uh, to try to identify those companies. But again, giving you that options hedge component. Yeah. And should every, in your point of view, should every long term investor be looking at sort of actively hedging that portfolio or is it an advanced sort of thing? It's not right for everyone. When should you be considering this? Yeah, it's a good point. I, I would say it's probably not right for everyone. It really is about risk, right? Um, when I look at the market and I think it might go down and at my you know older age, I think, man, I, I need to try to protect assets yeah. more, right? Diversification matters more. Um, but if you're a younger investor and you're saving for the next 20, 30, 40 years, 
Um, nothing wrong with being in some stocks, being more concentrated, right? We use the phrase that uh, concentration builds wealth and diversification protects wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing wrong with picking some companies that are going to be the future, you know, leaders, uh, you know, relative to the economy. So it really does depend on what your risk tolerance is, where you're invested, right? Where you might see more volatility. And, um, and then you got to make those decisions accordingly. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I just want to go back to advisor shares. Um, obviously you founded it and I just, what motivated you to, to start the company? Well, so I've been in the ETF space for a while. So before advisor shares, I worked at a firm called Ridex Investments that was later purchased by an insurance company called Security Benefit, later purchased by Guggenheim. And then Guggenheim eventually uh, sold their uh, ETF business off. However, Way back, and this was 2003, when it was Ridex, um, I was part of a team that launched their first exchange-traded funds. Um, and our first ETF that we launched was with the ticker symbol RSP, the equal weight S&P 500, which was a huge success and you know, a great opportunity to not just you know, enter the ETF space, but really you know, understand and learn the nuances of it. Uh, and it was a small company. I enjoyed the small company environment. You have a lot more you know, flexibility, autonomy, and things like that. Um, and so as the organization changed at Ridex, it, it created the opportunity for me to uh, you know, get out and sort of try something entrepreneurial, um, started a small mutual fund shop, saw a little bit of success there, um, but felt like you know, the opportunity in the actively managed ETF space would be uh, big. And it's just a challenge, you know, being a small firm navigating the space, but we've been around now a little over 10 years and, and have around $2 billion in assets under management. Um, and our sole focus has been since the uh, inception is, is around actively managed strategies. And if you, you've got a huge variety of different ETFs now. It's really impressive sort of selection for various different sort of strategies and approaches. Um, could you just uh, give us a brief overview of you know the, the range, and then I think we'll, it'd be good to talk about the thematic ones specifically. Sure. So at a high level, with the range, as you point out, we really do have everything from you know, DBLV, which is a value equity strategy sub-advised by the double line uh, team, which I know they're well known for bonds, but they have an outstanding equity team um, that they've been growing for a while now. So, you know, they've done a really good job in a category that hasn't been quite so popular, right? Value stocks. Um, but we have the whole range of fixed income. Hold is an ultra short, you know, cash money market alternative to uh, MENV, which is our most recent fixed income, but with a, an environmental focus to it. Um, you know, ESG can be a little bit challenging, but these guys have their own unique scoring mechanism. No company is ever really going to be perfect from any aspect of ESG, but it's a matter of looking at how they handle certain things and then scoring and ranking them. Um, and then, as you mentioned, you know, a, a large variety of, of sector ETFs that at least lately sort of dominate. Uh, the interest in terms of our, our, our assets and, and the flows that we've seen. So we have um, probably the thing that, you know, caught the most fire and excitement uh, is our yeah. cannabis strategies. We have two of them. Uh, we have a global strategy uh, with the ticker symbol YOLO, kind of kind of a funny, memorable ticker. Um, and then we have a U.S.-focused one, MSOS, that between the two uh, alone have $1.2 billion. But um, we're also starting to see traction in other interesting thematic areas. So we recently built BEDS, B-E-D-Z, which is focuses on the restaurant, cruise line industry, anything where you're staying in a hotel room or a room. Um, and then uh, EATS, E-A-T-Z, which focuses in on the restaurant industry. And that was our way of really trying to give investors an opportunity to kind of fine tune their portfolio and look for those companies 
that should do you know a, a good job of coming out of uh, yeah. the market. And we do believe those are still good categories as much as they're struggling with uh, labor costs and employees, as we talked about earlier. There are two industries, and especially the bed strategy, there are two industries where at least they have a lot of price flexibility. Um, maybe less so with restaurants. You notice it in subtle ways where, you know, maybe that burger is now a dollar two extra and then fries don't come with it, but you can pay a couple more bucks for fries on the side. Um, they have, you know, the ability to do that. And, and I think in some ways, you know, the interesting thing that we ran into in the pandemic where we started using these QR codes, right, to access the menu online and people aren't handling, you know, these paper or plastic menus around, you know, trying to keep some distance. That created a great opportunity for dynamic pricing for restaurants, right? The ability to you know scan that QR code, but if you're there between prime time at dinner, those prices might change a little bit for it. And of course, in the hotel industry, we've been used to that, right? The popular weekends yes. on the holiday weekends, the prices are always high. Now they're just you know mostly high <laughs> all the time. And and so you know so they one it's good from an investing perspective to maintain their margins. Um, so it really has given them a lot of flexibility. But those are two interesting strategies, beds and eats. Uh, we even have psychedelics now. Um, and then on its way out soon, actually, is a, a drone-focused strategy as well. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Um, there's another one, actually, I sort of highlighted in, in my notes, the Vice ETF, which I thought was quite interesting as well. Absolutely. You know, that's one of our favorites. Um, the portfolio manager for that ETF is a guy named Dan Ahrens, who's actually the one who originated the idea around the Vice Mutual Fund. Some I don't even know what, 25 plus you know, years ago. Um, so we've got an outstanding expert in the space. He actually does run our, our, our cannabis and psychedelic strategies. Actually, he's running our thematics as well, But because there's a lot of overlap in that vice category with restaurants and hotels, as you might imagine. Um, so yeah, vice has been a nice one that it's been interesting because of the volatility we've seen in the cannabis space. When we launched the ETFs, the market kind of took off a little bit and you saw really nice returns. And then it's really been this, you know, painful slog of, of the industry waiting for, you know, politicians and federal movement around a lot of legislation that we know is coming and is happening at the state level in the U.S., but it's been very slow to happen yeah. at the federal level. But if you look at something like VICE and that ETF uh, ticker symbol is just, you know, V-I-C-E for VICE, um, it's a way to kind of look at that category um, but really more from the acquirers than what are likely the acquirees. And if you line up how Vice has performed over that same time frame with cannabis, it's really more kept up with the market and has been a nice, you know, compliment if you're a thematic investor looking at the cannabis space, but, you know, a little bit unhappy with how those stocks have been performing. It gives you a bit more of a balance. The companies that are likely going to be acquired as, you know, regulatory changes happen over the next year or two with companies that are likely going to be the ones to acquire in that space. Yeah. And one of the things uh, you look at when you do these, uh, when you construct these ETFs is the economic moat. Um, how, do, how do you sort of determine that? I imagine it's not you doing it yourself and, you know, it's members of your team for each of the ETFs, but do you have a quick overview of how you sort of approach economic moat? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of that really comes to, you know, different attributes in terms of a company's size, right? You know, how easy is it to compete with them? Um, and size is not always, you know, the uh, the equaling factor, right? You take a company like a Tesla versus a, a GM or a Ford or even VW, right? And think about competition in the EV space. Those automobile firms clearly have the size, you know, over a company like Tesla. But size alone, you know, won't always give you uh, the right product or the right market share. 
Um, and then certainly you look at the uniqueness of the offerings, right? Um, even though they might be uh, in a competitive landscape. So, you know, Disney uh, being a popular position, right? Just unique, great brands. Um, yes, you can create your own movies. Yes, you can create, you know, your own theme parks. Um, but the experiences are unique. Uh, they seem to really compete with no other, at least, you know, um, within the U.S., so those are different attributes you would look at to try to decide. And that is the unique approach that we take to, to the thematic space uh, is, um, you know, really trying to identify the companies that do have, you know, those positive and fundamental attributes, including, you know, a, a nice moat relative to their business models. And you can't always find in every stock you have in a thematic portfolio, but we're trying to give you a smarter basket, you know, of that theme if possible. Yeah. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. And when you go about creating new ETFs in the thematic space, how, how do you go about choosing a theme? Like, uh, Is there some sort of research or, or trend following you do to find what's um, interesting I would describe it as half and half. Um, it's one of those things where sometimes you feel like you want to try to react to where you see the demand being today. Um, you know, maybe I'd argue beds and eats was a little bit like that. We knew sort of coming off this global pandemic, it's something anyone can see or observe, right? Um, we thought, man, there's these two products, at least uniquely in these categories, in other blended strategies, they exist in other products, but not sort of solely uh, focused on those two areas. Um, so really was jumping on an opportunity that's sort of observable right in front of your face. But I think the other approach to thematics is trying to come up with the things that, you know, maybe are way too early and not way too early in a negative way, but just early that not everyone sees, oh, this is how people are going to want to invest. Um, and you're almost guessing, you know, sometimes trying to, you know, trying to really guess and invest in building that product to, to see if that's going to work out. And I think of products like, at least from my perspective, you know, the metaverse ETF, right, which was really on the edge of how that was starting to pick up um, and gain recognition. In fact, that ETF, you know, I think came out even they had the ticker reserved and the strategy reserved even before Facebook changed their name to metaverse. Right. So it's you know, great timing for a product like that. Um, but it's hard to guess. Um, and even for us, uh, you know, UAV is the ticker for the upcoming drone ETF. And I should say, at least as of this point, we haven't picked a launch date yet, yeah. but we want to launch soon. And that's actually a strategy that's been tried before and then closed. But we really believe that uh, this is something that's starting to, you know, and, and unfortunately, in ways that, that aren't so positive, like what's going on in Europe, we know drones have been a big part of um, you know, what's gone on there. And, um, you know, so it's in some ways, and we were, you know, coming up with this idea to build the product well before the, uh, the war started there. But, um, but we do think it's a, a theme that can reemerge that people will be focused in on as a, as a potential source of alpha in their portfolio. Mm -hmm. And obviously growth, innovation stocks, um, have struggled over the last year or so. And, and commonly these are, um, in a lot of thematic sort of, uh, ETFs, even though there's a few there that, you know, that don't really cover those. But um, with the projected rate rises and what we've just discussed uh, about the Fed strategy, what do you think is going to happen to, to these growth stocks over, over the next sort of year or so, um, specifically those? So I think I'll still stick with the same answer, right, of, of watching the Fed. Um, but I am going to watch sort of the industries and categories, right? We are believers in the idea that, you know, these restaurants and hotels will come through um, it'll be a, a bit of a long slog, but 
Um, but I think, you know, those are the companies poised for the growth and in a weird sort of way. And again, I don't know that I, you know, completely love that the idea that, um, maybe companies in the restaurants and the hotel themes, uh, are going to grow well, I think coming uh, into the whole world really reopening. But I do think part of that comes on the backs of a lot of small businesses that just didn't make it, you know, through that pandemic. Right. Um, if you weren't a national chain as a restaurant, you didn't have access to the same capital and resources. And I do think it's a bad thing, right, that those businesses closed and, and struggled during that time frame. Um, but coming out of it, you know, it is the restaurants that were able to adapt, uh, you know, get better access to mobile and delivery uh, that are going to come out of this, you know, I think in, in a very positive way. And those, not surprisingly, there are a lot of the companies you know, that are public today, right? Again, versus, you know, smaller businesses uh, in your local city. And um, in terms of the value growth debate, what would be good for value, bad for growth and vice versa? If the strategy of what you're saying, you know, uh, so higher rate rises are typically bad for growth. Um, is that right in your... Right. And I would say, you know, the Fed conversation we had earlier about the balance sheet, I think is is less, you know, positive for growth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you saw a little bit of that, to be fair, even in the cannabis space, right? You know, our own, in our own products, you saw that in, in crypto, right? As the market pulled back a little bit, uh, people sold off what you might deem your more, you know, risky assets. And so when the market isn't screaming to all time highs and there isn't lots of liquidity flowing to the market, I think that's, uh, and, and, you know, interest rate rises, any interest rate rise, really. All those are are not so great for growth and, and and create an opportunity for value. But if it's keep adding to the balance sheet, you know, not be too aggressive when sh- with interest rates, you could easily watch that you know that sort of big tech and growth stocks uh, continue to on their march that they have been over the last what feels like almost the last decade, right? As they've outperformed value stocks. Yeah. But if we're truly seeing a downturn and you're going to be invested in the market. You know, it will not surprise me that most, you know, many investors will turn towards those sort of, you know, tried and true dividend payers, positive cash flow, you know, the making cereal companies of the world, the making the band-aids companies of the world uh, are what you're going to likely find dominating your portfolio. Mm-hmm. And this segues well into my next question, which is about um, how, do, how do thematic ETFs sit in an individual's portfolio for the typical sort of investor how, how should they approach something like this um, and what sort of weighting and this sort of thing? Obviously very personal, but what's something that you sort of suggest to your clients? Well, at a high level, I would say that, you, you know, you have to be take an active mindset around it, um, which is interesting for us because we take an active mindset around building our thematics. There are some companies that, you know, you can try to avoid that, that maybe don't belong in the basket. Um, but from an investor perspective, I think it's very different, right? They have to dial up and dial down that exposure um, when you're looking at individual thematic products like that. So I think that's the only thing that we tell people is, you know, and again, as an example, our cannabis performance uh, in our ETFs isn't that great, but the category uh, isn't that great, right? And there's really nothing magically that ETF can do to turn that category around. It's going to be very reflective of it, of course, even with our active approach. Um, so it really is up to the investor to say, I got to get out of cannabis stocks for a while. We're going to have a hard time for some X amount of period of time and then make that adjustment. So I think that is the thing about thematics is it does require the investor to, you know, you don't have to trade it every day, every week, every month, but you know, you want to keep an eye on that portfolio and decide when you're going to make those adjustments 
Or you can look, I mean, we did uh, partner up with a fairly well-known financial advisor, California-based firm uh, called Gerber Kawasaki. Uh, Ross Gerber is one of the founders there. And um, we launched an ETF with a ticker symbol, GK, and it is a thematic rotation. And so it has, you know, pets as a category. It has, you know, things that used to be illegal, which is where sort of vice and psychedelics come in category. And he's adjusting and rotating around these themes, you know, for investors. He's been a big Tesla advocate. So he does have the high growth in there, but he has that active flexibility like investors do when they use thematic ETFs to make those adjustments. So that's the thing, place that we start is when you're using thematics, keep an active eye to it, right? Again, you don't have to rapidly trade it, but you do want to be aware of when, you, when it's time to make the adjustments for your risk tolerance or look at something like GK where, you know, he'll rotate around the thematics for you. Well, we actually had um, him on the show and it was very interesting yeah, to go, go oh, through nice. uh, yeah, earlier, in, earlier in the year. Um, and uh, it's actually on that magazine as well, a magazine cover. So it was re- yeah, very interesting to go into that. And we went into that ETF in, in detail. Uh, I think that's actually how we, how we heard about you guys. Um, but yeah, the other ETF that actually stood out, which is, I believe is a new one, uh, is the AI managed one, Bob AI, Powered Momentum ETF. Yes. So I thought, I thought, could you take us through the, yep. the investment strategy for that? I, I thought it was really, really interesting. And I'm sure people will like uh, what, what you've got to say. Absolutely. So we're working with a, a guy named Anthony Buchanan, uh, you know, based out of Alabama. Um, and it's really his model that runs this strategy. Uh, now he uses a similar, he, he's got this combination approach, right? We talked about the sentiment ETF earlier that has this uh, sentiment driven long stock basket with options as a hedge. He's actually somewhat similar, but he is a sentiment driven stock basket. So using a similar um, you know, AI approach to scanning, you know, the uh, company's digital footprint. But what he is doing then, he has a tactical allocation that works over that portfolio. So when he sees the technical indicators are bad, either at a small cap, mid cap, or large cap uh, perspective, he'll actually sell the positions and, and go to cash. So instead of you know, in, in the sense strategy, you're always invested, but sort of always hedged. In LETB or the Let Bob, you know, AI strategy. He is going to be sometimes invested, but sometimes in cash, and he's looking at that at a market cap level. So he's making long stock selections on the long side, right? Picking companies and deciding which ones he wants, being very selective about that based on the uh, the AI process to measuring that sentiment. Um, but when his technical indicators say it's time to not add new positions, he'll sell off positions. You know, when the technical landscape for that market capitalization category, so looking at it from a small and mid and large perspective. Uh, tells him that might, now might not be a great time to be invested in that category. So again, his hedging component isn't saying that that's a bad company or the wrong time to be in that company. It's saying it's the wrong time to be you know, in that market capitalization category. And from what I read, there's still an individual, that the fund manager, who does all the uh, final buying and selling, although the, the, the Bob AI informs that decision. Right. Absolutely. So, so it's a yeah, third party model um, that we get from Anthony. Um, and then I think if you look at that one, I, it probably lists Dan Ahrens, who runs our cannabis and vice strategies as the portfolio manager. So yeah, he's ultimately pulling the triggers on it, but he's, it's not his methodology. He's leveraging uh, the let Bob strategy uh, to drive the model. Right. So um, they mentioned that, yeah, fundamental sentiment is one of the things they look at. How, how do you assess sentiment on fundamentals? 
Well, so it's it's interesting, right? Because again, their their sort of AI approach, which is scanning that digital landscape, looking at social, but not looking at social in terms of, hey, we like this company or we don't like the company or like the stock, but more like think about, you know, when Ford announced its F-150 and electric vehicle, right? They'll look at that digital engagement around a product. Um, but again, as I mentioned, not just social. It, and I was about to say Reddit, though some might consider Reddit, you know, more social as well. Amazon app downloads, you know, they'll look at as many different digital categories in which they can pull that data from. And so, different from traditional fundamental data, right, which is, you know, looking at the balance sheet, of course, right, and making decisions about things like mode and making decisions about things like margins and all of that. This is really looking at, you know, different type of data, um, fundamental very much in nature, but really more about how that data, those data points are picking up over time. Because remember, it's an earnings focused stock selection strategy. So they know just based historically, when companies beat their, their earnings expectations, they go up. And it doesn't matter if the expectations were low or high. Typically, when you beat it, it's positive for the stock. And typically, when you miss, not always, but when you miss, it's going to be bad for the stock. And so they are looking at, at the, the frequency and the amount of engagement that they're seeing through this process. And they're using their AI software really, to, again, to try to parse through these things and, and not just filter out the noise, but over time, the process has to learn. You know, at, at that meaning, something that they saw maybe last month or last quarter that thought might have been valuable data point, but now have since learned that that data point isn't quite reliable for that process to improve over time, it's really got to kick that component out. Yeah. Um, and so that's a little bit of what's going on behind the scenes as it measures, you know, sort of, again, this fundamental momentum data uh, and then looking at the companies, looking at the products. And it's got to be a company, obviously, that's, the, you know, targeted to have positive and good earnings, right? And so when they beat, that should be a positive thing. Um, and so, so far, you know, looking at how they use just the long portion of the software only, um, they've had a good amount of success at picking a good stock basket, but again, still using the technical momentum component, right? Price only to try to determine when they're going to hedge the portfolio. So it has a little bit of both in it. Yeah. Yeah. That was very interesting. I thought incorporating the technical um, analysis of momentum. Do you, do you know how it sort of knows if a stock is, you know, experiencing positive momentum technically? Is that what it looks at and, and what? It does, um, but it's looking at it at a category, right? So you could certainly look at it. We've got Dorsey Wright-based products. Dorsey Wright's well-known for uh, their technical analysis. And so you could look at any of the products in our lineup like um, AADR, which is internationally focused, or DWMC, which is microcap. All of those are measuring technical analysis at an individual stock level. But in let B, one, they're using the fundamental momentum to decide on the long side. And they're using technical momentum, but I, and I don't want to say that they don't care about positive technical momentum. They do because that their sign that they should still stay invested in that category, but the fundamental process will tell them what stocks. But it's really negative momentum is the trigger that then tells that, but at a, at an asset class, or I'm sorry, at a market capitalization category, not an individual stock level that will then say, Hey, get hedged here. So they're looking at small cap, you know, basically Russell 2000 technical levels. And when that category turns negative, that's when they're going to say, all right, we don't want to add to any of the small cap positions, even if our fundamental process says, hey, this is a company that, that is expected to outperform earnings. 
they'll use that technical, negative technical indicator at the capitalization level to say, yes or no, are we going to actually be in that position? And so far, so good. You know, I mean, they've come in, <laughs> they've launched in a, in a volatile market, but, uh, you know, they were in cash early and that's really helped their numbers. And, you know, now they're starting to get allocated back in as the market's turning up. Yeah, I had a quick look. It did look very interesting. That's why I yeah, sort of pulled it out. Um, and how, how frequently do they transact? Are we talking weekly, monthly? Um, you know, the, I know on the long side of their data component, um, that's roughly a monthly rebalance. Um, now, they don't have to, right? If the, the fundamental uh, sentiment data is um, telling them to still stay in the same positions, they can. But, you know, because it's all earnings based, you, you should expect there'll be some amount of rotation, right? Once that company's passed its earnings, um, it's less, you know, valuable to have it in the portfolio unless it's triggering again that, you know, what they're seeing is bigger than what people are expecting from an earnings perspective. Um, so yeah, on the portfolio or on the equity side, you should sort of expect to see that rebalancing roughly once a month, but with let Bob, he'll make the tactical decisions at any time. So we've seen in, in the way the portfolio trades, um, you know, he's, he's gonna, you know, there really isn't a, a limitation or a time frame if, if they need to pull back on a position, um, and not wait for a month in rebalancing, they'll, they'll do it. Yeah. It's extremely interesting. I'll definitely keep a close eye on that one. Um, so I've, no, I've noted down something earlier I wanted to ask you about because I, I remember that it was something um, pretty interesting that's happening at the moment. This, this is more of a macro level thing. Um, US housing market obviously experiencing, I think, I, I believe again, uh, record highs in, in average prices for the last month. Um, and at the moment, uh, the 30-year mortgages, mortgage rates uh, are hitting something like 4%, which I, I believe is a, a substantially higher than it has been previously. What do you expect to happen in this this sort of area, and is that going to impact markets at all? Or? Well, it's a good question because what I hope doesn't happen is the value of my personal house going down, right? But I think that's what's going to happen. Uh, the value of my house and, and others will go down. Uh, housing has been on fire, as you point out, and um, you know, uh, less supply, right, relative to demand. Um, but yes, increasing interest rates. I think, you know, some of the supply chain issues we saw with, you know, construction materials were a bit of a challenge as well. Um, all of those have led to, and just even the whole, you know, environment of work from home, right? Needing more space or some people are buying second homes and all of that getting out of a, you know, big urban area. All of that has just driven, you know, a huge amount of demand. And, um, I think a couple of those things that are like interest rates uh, that are popping up now uh, will cool that demand a little bit. And I think that that's important, again, not so much around the value of my home, um, but, you know, holy cow, uh, you know, affordable housing uh, has been incredibly challenging for people. Rents have gone higher, right, with the prices of higher uh, homes going higher. So that's really the big concern is, I think, just from a, you know, just from a human perspective, uh, having those prices cool back off, uh, getting a lot more affordable housing into the mix, uh, I think will be helpful and and good from an investing perspective. You know, I think will you see a downturn? Uh, maybe, probably, but I don't see a, a decline in the demand to build more housing capacity, affordable and not you know, and vacation and you know more space and all of that because I do think the work from home uh, dynamic is not going away. You know, but that's going to be an interesting category to watch from an investing perspective. But I think a category that's going to hopefully change for the better relative to improving the overall economy as well. Yes. And something that 
I hadn't realized, uh, and maybe it's different in the, in the States, it, um, the banks actually change the mortgage rates. They, they try and predict what will happen based on the funds rates changes. Right. So they actually move prior to, you know, the fund rates changing. I, I had assumed, you know, wrongly that um, these would change after rate rises would happen, which is interesting because, you know, if the story plays out differently and they aren't able to raise rates as much, I'm assuming they'll come back down again. They will. People will refinance and absolutely, um, you know, get their rates at a lower uh, level, mm-hmm. uh, which is a good point, right? When you we talked about this earlier, when you have the Fed saying, oh, we could do, you know, four, five or six or others speculating that the Fed could do it. Um, the banks are guessing too. And to your point, they, they might guess wrong, but it's not the worst environment for them, right? Because what they, uh, you know, not to say that all banks do this, but you know, they're raising the rates on loans, house loans or otherwise, but I have not seen a significant increase in, you know, savings accounts rates. I know they popped up a little bit, but, um, you know, they enjoy that margin for at least a little bit of period of time until, you know, an adjustment happens, you know, one way or another. Mm-hmm. Well, no, that's, I mean, it's been really interesting um, to go through a variety of your ETFs in, in, in detail and the sort of macro environment. So thank you very much for all your Advice. Is there anything you'd like to say before we wrap up? No. Well, actually, I'll, I'll add in because I did mention, you know, several Advisor Shares products. You know, as always, go to advisorshares.com. You'll see risks, charges, fees, and expenses. Um, so I always tell people, be careful. Don't, you know, don't take investment advice off the internet. Um, but, you know, I appreciate the time making today. And it was hopefully everyone finds the information helpful. Thanks, Noah. And is there somewhere um, people can go to follow? Do you write or release articles about your, your opinions on the markets or anything? Um, I'd follow the social account. So one, you could follow you know the Ad Advisor Shares handle on Twitter. Um, and then I'm at Hammond Shares. Um, so I try to not just echo what the Advisor Shares account is doing. You'll see some live streaming. We try to live stream every day at, at noon, noon uh, Eastern uh, in the US time. So I don't, <laughs> it might not work depending on where in the world you're listening to this podcast from. But um, uh, And then we try to get the replays available. But yeah, every day at noon, you'll see guys like Ross. He was just on last week. We bring uh, external um, company you know, managers, executives. We bring on internal portfolio managers that we work with. Um, just had Emilio Ciccone from Double Line on there. So you can follow all of that in, in the Twitter accounts. Uh, and then if you're looking for you know bad finance humor, you can follow my Twitter. <laughs> well, cheers, Noah. That's uh, been great. And so, yeah, have a good rest of the week. Thank you. You as well. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. Co-fruition.